Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in American Studies, a channel of the vast and diverse New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Amico. And today we'll be talking with the editor of The War Outside My Window, The Civil War Diary of Leroy Wiley Gresham, 1860 to 1865. Editor Janet Elizabeth Kuhn also transcribed and annotated the diary, which is published by Savis Beatty. Leroy Gresham from Macon, Georgia, began writing his diary at 12 years old. As he travels north with his father to see a doctor in Philadelphia, ostensibly about his broken leg, which had been buried under rubble when a chimney of a burned-out home collapsed on him as he and his friends were exploring the premises. Leroy returns from Philadelphia to Georgia and writes daily, most often from a reclined position, but full of good humor acid wit, and snark about the goings-on of the home, his family, slaves, people who pass through town in the house, what he reads in the newspapers and in many, many novels, as around him the war proceeds and he cheers for the Confederacy, until finally it comes to an end when he also, coincidentally or perhaps not, dies at the age of 17. The diaries have been in the possession of the Library of Congress until their transcription today by Janet Kroon. Uh, Janet is recently retired from teaching international baccalaureate history in Fairfax County, Virginia, and this is her first book. Janet, welcome to the conversation. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So how did you come to work on this project? I saw a Facebook notice about an article written in the Washington Post that came through my newsfeed. And I went and read the article because I thought, this is, looks really interesting. And as I read the article, I was just entranced by the, the idea of the book, especially having taught teenagers and knowing that teenagers are, are intrigued by people their own age and other points in history. Um, one of the things I noticed was that um, the article said it uh, had not been, um, the journals had not been printed. And I contacted my friend Ted Savas to find out what he knew, because I figured if anybody knew, it would be him. And um, make a long story short, we found out that um, we figured out that it was not published yet. And so he sent me a contract and we went for it. That was a year ago. So we've turned this around from just a concept to an actual physical book in one year. Wow. So now tell me a little bit about um, uh, Savas Beatty, uh, the, the publisher, um, its interest in the Civil War and your own interest in the Civil War. Obviously, you say you responded to the excerpts of the text in the Washington Post article, right. knowing that students students would respond to it. But but also it is a story of the Civil War. And I'm, so I'm wondering how that plays into your interest? Uh, well, Savas Beatty does a lot of Civil War and, and other wars. They're starting a new series now on the, the Revolutionary War. Um, but they, they've done a lot of research, uh, I'm sorry, a lot of publishing on, on the Civil War from lots of different perspectives. Um, I started working on another project about four years ago on the war in Northern Virginia. I live in uh, Loudoun County, Virginia an area that was um, occupied by one army or the other throughout the entire uh, length of the Civil War. And I noticed that a lot of the resources I was using were published by Savas Beatty, and they were a good quality, um, nicely put together books, but the information was usually high, you know, really good. Um, so they came to be one of my favorite publishers. If I saw it was by Savas Beatty, I thought, okay, that's, that's a, that's, that's one of my check marks there for a good book. So that's why I uh, kind of got to know Ted and um, came to him when I, when I saw this, because I figured he would be the one to know. Right. And obviously there's, there are 
hundreds, thousands of diaries that that remain unpublished. And so it is many times um, small or at least independent presses that are necessary to get this out there. Um, it's interesting that that you you mentioned being or living um, on a in an area where during the war uh, it was constantly being affected by by what was going on um, in Virginia uh, and what you know Leroy in his diary gets a lot of information wrong which you correct in your annotations mm-hmm. such as what's going on in the in the battles elsewhere uh, facts about his his health but the most truthful part of the diary is his circumstances his material constraints his sort of situatedness um at home in georgia yes um and so we 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 glimpse his attachments to his brother his sister his parents slaves friends and neighbors as he reports on their appearance and interactions as these people come and go around him because he can't move without their help (laughs) so um i'm interested in the family around him, and you begin the book by offering a very detailed family and friends biographical chart that you obviously spent a lot of time constructing. Yes, um, these are the people who who pass through, who he mentions only briefly, um, that are interacting with and 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 tending to him. Mm-hmm. Um, so, h- how important was it to flesh out those those people, um, and what was that process like? That process actually, it took it took a lot of time, um, almost as much time as the transcription did to figure out who these people were, um, because he knew who they were. So he didn't have to explain who Mrs. Whittle was, but I had to figure out who she was. Um, uh, the same with um, uh, cousin Sarah or Aunt Eliza. Um, they they played an important role, but um, when I uh, when I started with Ancestry.com um, and started branching out literally into the family, um, at one point um, we had something like fifty some pe- women who had the name either Eliza or Elizabeth, many of whom were aunts. So I had to figure out which one was which, which. Um, took more delving into, and so you'd have to wait for Ancestry to pop things up. Um, there were people who were important to him that had odd names, like um, Uncle Link or Cousin Jenks. And so it was by happenstance going through Ancestry that I was able to figure those connections out. Um, knowing who the people were in the community was also important because the family was well-connected. John Gresham, his father, had been elected mayor of Macon twice. Um, after the war, he served in the Georgia um, legislature. Um, so he had influential people coming through the home on a, on a regular basis and got information from these people as well. And knowing what their role in the community was was also extremely important. Um there's a little guy in the book, um, his cousin Tracy, who has an interesting kind of a sad story during the war. But the extended family for him was also, they were incredibly influential. So knowing all of that gives the people that come in and out of Laura's life a lot more depth. You know more about them. And um, you're able to get a better sense of where he's situated socially in Macon. Right. And you obviously, uh, when a name pops up in an entry, you footnote it and we can refer back to the chart, uh, at the beginning of the book. Um, uh, but, but the text is still almost entirely Leroy's words. And so a, as a, as a researcher, as a historian myself, you, you start with the subject's words and then you move outward from from those as you did in terms of at least figuring out who these people are that are walking around him and that he's referencing however we we don't have access to to um it, some of what may be other sources um in this story so did how did you imagine the life of these people after identifying them how did you imagine their life um 
did were there other letters um, or other sources that you found um, in that these people wrote that helped to give you information in terms of imagining the scene around you? I did. There was a book. Um, one of one of his uh, mothers, well, his mother's only sister, as a matter of fact, uh, she had a couple of sisters who died in infancy, but the only one who lived to um, adulthood and had two children that were relatively close to Leroy's age. Um, there's a book that contains letters written between her and her husband when her husband that would been would have been Edgeworth Bird went off to war. And reading those letters gave the family a greater context. Um, people in the extended family, I found, were very concerned for Leroy and his health. They knew he was very sick, and um, even when he was away at war, um, Uncle Edge, who is as Leroy refers to him, wanted to know how Leroy was doing. Um, it gave us gave me other insight to um, his grandmother. Um, he only had one existing grandparent at that time, um, and other people within the family. Um, one of his uncles, for example, is captured and is a prisoner of war. And I got a little bit more information on that from this this other this other source. So um, we were able to kind of integrate that into some of the footnotes and also into Dramatis Personae, which you're referring to at the beginning. Right. And now we're just obviously setting the scene for, for our, our listeners. Um, so there are all these people that are coming by and you say a lot of them also were curious and cared for Leroy's health. Mm-hmm. I mentioned in the opening that um, he his leg was injured when he was younger and his father brought him north to see a doctor in Philadelphia. And it was probably at this time or soon after that um, the doctors and the parents realized that Leroy is probably suffering from from something beyond the physical trauma of, of bricks falling on his leg. Yes. And uh, the other huge component of, of, the, of this diary and of the work um, that, that you and others have done um, is to identify possibly what the condition uh, from which he was suffering. And uh, uh, a doctor, uh, someone who, who knows the history, uh, medical history of the time, uh, identifies it as spinal uh, tuberculosis. Exactly. Yeah, Ted and I went back and forth on what on what we thought was going on. Um, I, I have I have asthma. I have children who have asthma. So his nighttime coughing was something that I was very familiar with. But it went beyond that. It was worse than that. Um, he, he was getting no relief, and he had other kinds of pains, other kinds of issues. Um, even on the Library of Congress page, they assumed that he had some sort of unknown illness that had not been diagnosed at the time, and they thought the, the problems on his back were more from bed sores, but they weren't. And Dr. Dennis Rosbach was able to look at the um, – basically what I did is I typed out his medical records – and said, you know, these are his complaints, his symptoms, the medications, and the medications that they put this kid on, we like to refer to as pharmaceutical roulette. I mean, it was it was um, very strong medications they put him on. Mostly, it seems for pain relief. But uh, he just just to clarify, so you say you you typed out his medical record. You basically created a medical record. Yeah, I did. You you basically brought together all the references across the number of years in the diary that he makes to to um, uh, things he was given to help him feel better and the physical complaints. Right. So you put that all together so that we can see it. Yeah. So yeah, that was so Dr. Rosebach could could see that without having to filter through all the other. Um, wider range of information on battles and campaigns and media and visits and all the other things that go on in this multi-layered book. Um, so I just pulled out that segment of, of it for him, and he was able to go through um, uh, lots of his sources from the time period and came up with the diagnosis of the spinal tuberculosis, which I didn't even know existed. I thought tuberculosis was just right. a lung disease, um, but it it was much more complicated, much more horrific than that. Right, and and what's so interesting is that um, we can be more precise in identifying probably or most likely what uh, he was suffering from, um, but there there still is, as we all suffer from things today, the question of 
of where the pain is coming from and why, why, why is it painful one moment and not painful another? And so it's it, in some ways, the sto- one story that comes through for me in reading this diary is that, that even when we know the quote unquote answers, that pain is never completely localizable. Exactly. You know, the, the, exper- the experience of pain is happens through um, so many other factors, including what people are saying about us, including what we're reading that may have no direct bearing on our health, mm-hmm. yet certainly we begin we begin to associate with it. And of course, what he is reading about in the newspapers when they do come through or the telegraph um, is the, are the battles that are going right. on uh, in the war. Right. And so we, we can talk about this more later too, but I just wanted to, to, to bring it up. And, um, now, which is to say, um, it, it's, it's fascinating to think about how he is envisioning the suffering, um, of people, uh, away from him on the battlefield, um, and his own suffering at home. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he, he has quite a few people that he worries about. Um, some of his his relatives, um, two of his uncles are killed. Um, a couple of them are injured. He said after Antietam, I believe it was Antietam, that everybody he knows who was in that battle was hurt in one way, shape, or form. Uh, they were either killed or injured, and and he just can't imagine that that kind of. Of course, that was the bloodiest single day in American history in warfare. Um, he can't imagine it. Um, but he does, he does read about all these different things that come through. And, um, one thing that, that you notice, and uh, several people have mentioned to me who have pre-read the book, um, the war seems to keep him alive. It keeps him interested, um, uh, because he does not know that he's dying until the very end. His parents did not tell him, which I, as a parent, I can kind of understand, um, they didn't want him to give up hope. They wanted to keep him going. Um, and his interest in the war and what was happening around him um, gave him something to be interested in. So when the war's over, um, that's when he really goes into a deep decline. Right, exactly. And, and um, you could see his his the his passages in his diary um, get longer as as the war gets closer to home. And and of course, because there's more to write about, but also one would think, at least I did that he is using words and writing as a way to 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 manage his feelings. Exactly. Um, He's and as a teacher, it was fascinating for me to watch a boy who's 12 at the beginning and then 17 at the end to watch his intellectual growth and his ability to look at a situation and, and um, analyze it and um, make um, projections that are logical um, to sometimes disagree with his father. He adored his father, uh, but sometimes he, he, he will write in his diary, I don't agree with what he thinks, and this is what I think. And um, to see that was 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 really wonderful for me um, to go from, um, again, someone who's 12 and writes very simply at the beginning, very descriptive. This is what I see. This is what I hear. Um, so this is what I think is going to happen to project outwards is something that older, older teens are, are capable of doing much easier than younger teens are. And he was um, on that level, extremely bright, extremely bright. Right, which obviously also is a function of him reading all the time, since there's not much else to do in terms of being in a reclined position. Because his leg never healed, he was never able to walk around by himself fully. Um, And so the family had a wagon built and a slave was was uh, tasked with with bringing him around the yard, the house and into town. And of course, the family would, would take the wagon and him into town as well. Um, but, but, but there's no other activities for him in terms of being on his feet. And so, so reading novels is a huge part of his day and, and no doubt he's gaining a lot of vocabulary, um, but also, uh, exposing himself to, to ways of, of thinking and formulating thoughts and words that, that are affecting, uh, the development of his thought and writing over time. Can you talk a little bit about these many, many novels that are referenced, uh, that he read. 
Oh my goodness. He reads everything from Shakespeare to everything by, by Scott. Um, Scott was the author of the era in the South. Um, Yes. Um, he, he reads a number of things that I actually, um, popular books that I have read from the time period, just to get a sense for what these, these kinds of stories were. And they were the, the tearjerker kinds. And there's one that his, his aunt recommends to him when they're visiting the one trip that he makes. Um, the family all goes to see his grandmother in Athens, Georgia, and the one of his aunts recommends a book to him and his mother and the aunt said, oh, this one made me cry. And he's like, um, yeah, right. Well, it was, you know, more of a tearjerker, romantic kind of thing that wouldn't appeal to a teenage boy quite as much. Um, but he read it and said it was okay. And so he, he read, um, um, gosh, The Old Curiosity Shop. He read books about travel. He read a lot of religious work. The family was heavily involved in the Presbyterian church. Um, So every Sunday he either uh, read in the Bible itself, he does that later in his life, or he reads um, Sunday school books um, to keep with the the Sunday theme because he couldn't go to church with the family. Um, so he's he does a good job of reading biographies. Um, he, there was a biography of uh, Washington that he got his younger sister Minnie to read. Um, he just read anything and everything he could get, um, including newspapers, which had to be mailed, which could be a problem um, because the mail could be cut. Um, and he gives you a um, critique of the different in what we would today call embedded reporters were actually soldiers that would write under an assumed name for a particular newspaper. And he had his favorites there. Um, He lets you know what he thinks about politics, about the different generals. Um, Later, he'll tell you, well, this campaign was totally messed up and not done right. Um, So he he comes to have a pretty good understanding of of what's happening around him through all the reading that he does do. So I want to return... um basically to his being separate from what he's reading about. So as we say, most of his reading is is about um, the war or novels that are set and taking place elsewhere in time and space. And so I'm really interested in that that sort of disjunction between between where he is and his material constraints and his imagination and his trying to figure out what's going on and then making judgments about whether people are accurate, accurately reporting or whether something did or did not happen. Um, so... Uh, and then we also have to remember that that people around him are are dying and suffering uh, for reasons that don't have to do with uh, a battle. So there's you know illnesses that go around, and people you know there's a lot of reasons people died in the 19th century. And so um, uh, yet we still don't know exactly all the causes um, with with those. Uh, more so with Leroy because he is, and this is another distinguishing feature of this diary is his is his. Uh, remarking upon his symptoms um, and treatment throughout, uh, but nonetheless, um, there there is a sort of a separation um, between what what is going on elsewhere and what is going on at home in terms of the war elsewhere and his daily life at home. Um, in fact, they really the family really does a lot not to be part of the war, uh, you know, on the battlefield, and it's not till the end where Thomas. Um, Leroy's brother has to enroll and even his father um, has to as well. But they they really do a lot to avoid that. And obviously that's because of their class status uh, and that which factors into their experience of the war. So can you talk a little bit about um, how their uh, status in the community um, shaped their place in the war? Um, they, they had, um, I think a kind of unique position. His, his father, uh, he was trained as an attorney, but didn't care for the law. Um, they had two plantations that they owned in Houston County, um, which not being from Georgia, I had to find out that it wasn't Houston, Texas they were talking about, but Houston County, Georgia, which is the county south of where Macon is in Bibb, um, and with that, um, he was able to grow cotton, of course, and he became the president and uh, the manager of the Macon Manufacturing Company, which produced cotton fabrics. 
um, that became to be um, one way that the family could contribute to the war effort by producing cotton. And then um, as prices went up, of course, everything inflated so much because of the blockade. Um, John Gresham, Leroy's father, found himself in a um, kind of a odd situation. The poor, the poor could not afford the, the fabric. And we're starting to complain. Um, this Leroy doesn't write about very much. I got most of the information about this from an external source. But what he did was uh, he agreed that the poor people could come and they could get a yard of cotton for a pound of bacon. And then he sold the bacon to the Army of the Tennessee, which those soldiers were starving. Leroy talks a little bit about that, about the officers coming to the house about the bacon. But um, he also gave, I think, uh, 1,500 pounds of bacon to poor people just because they needed it. So he ended up trying to make, you know, keep keep a, a keep from people having riots. There was one um, clothing riot in Macon. It happened on the same day as the famous Richmond bread riots. Um, to keep people kind of settled, and yes, we can't. We're able to get what what we need. Um, they were uh, wealthy enough where they could afford to get a um, substitute for Thomas at the beginning. Um, there's one passage, and it's it's really quick. You you would almost miss it, where um, Leroy talks about father going to uh, Milledgeville, where Thomas was at college, to bring him peanuts and some clothing and a substitute. And that was it. And then the, it, it, unless you know that that's... Um, referring to somebody else to fight in Thomas's place. Um, you, you would totally miss out on that. But after a while, those were um, considered null and void. And if you had bought a substitute or paid for one, um, you now had to go into the army. So at 19, Thomas has to enlist first in the militia. And then he goes into the army of Northern Virginia, spends time in the Shenandoah, and then um, eventually does come back home to Macon and serves. So the substitute being one example of many where you highlight a, a, a larger issue that appears maybe in a, only a word in um, Leroy's diary. Um, but uh, so so this is the stuff you bring out in, in the footnotes. Um, but uh, you let the diary stand nonetheless. And, uh, and it, so basically what we're exposed to are very, um, a lot of repetition in his reports on everyday activities such as eating and the weather. Now people quote unquote may get bored, but I, I really want to push on that and think about what it means to read a diary like this. And, um, what kind of um, uh, uh, emotional process uh, that yields for the reader? One of the things I I, re- I realized or, or was driven home to me while reading it was was okay. Yes, we all eat every day and and hopefully talk to someone, uh, be it a family or a friend, and we all sleep and eating, sleeping, reading, talking. These these are essentially and remarking on the weather. These are essentially the 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 main substance or through lines throughout all the entries. And it but but the the very repetition um to me is quite powerful um because it it shows and that these are the most important things in the world. At the end of the day, you know, we we have to eat, we have to we have to sleep. Um, uh, hopefully, we have some kind of stimulation. Maybe it's reading, um, and and so so it's quite important to be kind of faced with that reality day after day after day as we're reading it. So, how was it? For- right, it's a, it's a continuity. It's a continuity. You know, you've got to do all those things, and th- and through that continuity. Sorry to cut you off there, but. Um, um, through that continuity, you can see towards the end where they, he starts to, it becomes more important, what are we going to eat? Oh, today, I, I would not think about eating a robin. But that started to become something that they were considering that was a good meal. Um, because it was hard to get to get food. It was hard to get things. And even though they had two plantations and they could pull product up from the the plantation. Um, After a while there, he says at the end, you know, we have no more butter. We have to 
we have to have gravy now if we want to have something on our bread or something because their cows must have gotten stolen or, or requisitioned or something because they had no more access to these luxuries, even as a wealthy family. So you can gauge how well the family is doing by these these different things. Um, the weather, you talk about warmth. Um at the beginning, they have coal, and there's some very amusing scenes with the coal um, where um, it pops around the room and is burning stuff. But then he has, he's talking about, oh, we can't afford coal. Now we're going to have to buy wood, and the wood gets incredibly expensive. So you can see the inflationary trends that even wealthy families are having to deal with um, by looking at these everyday things that people have to think about. Right. So as you, you're, you're saying these everyday, the, the changes in the everyday, um, uh, are a register of larger, uh, social and economic changes, but also, uh, what we see, or I would say feel in this register of the daily are, is the just the enjoyment of eating. And the, and the pleasure of a nice day and how much, especially someone who's sitting around all day, um, how much those uh, changes in feeling around being happy or sad really affect and shape his, his entire world and how he sees it. And so, so there is, there's many words, you know, when he talks about, uh, dinner, uh, you know, going to someone else's house for dinner and, and maybe it's just a word or two, but it marks a, a real enjoyment. Uh, you know, uh, that when you, when you get right down to it, that's, that's what was most important in his life as it is for, for many people today that when you can, when you can actually sit down and enjoy a meal and that those bursts, bursts of joy, I feel are, are hard one as, as a reader, because we're not used to just thinking about that as, as an experience in and of itself without, you know, analyzing it, but it's there and it's presented in a way that, that really forces you to come to grips with that. Yeah. One of the, one of the editing choices that we did make to kind of, um, because you do say it is repetitive is that for about two or three years, he recorded three times a day, the temperature. And we thought that was a little bit much. And we're trying to, um, keep the book, not let it get too long. So we pulled that out. We left his descriptors in it. It's sunny and warm, or it's cool and cloudy, or it looks like it might rain. Um, unless it was something like extremely hot or exceptionally cold, um, where you would pay more attention to the temperature. So that was one editorial decision that we made to kind of make it a read a bit smoother for the reader. And what, what were the additional weather reports that you cut out? Like, give us an example of something that he went on about that you then sort of just kept the sunny and warm part. Oh, he would say at eight o'clock, it's 74 degrees. At noontime, it's 83. At five o'clock, it's um, 84. And that he did that for three years, two or three years, every single day. And after a while, it does become a little bit meaningless. You go, yeah, it's getting warmer out. Um, but just his description of it's sunny and warm at the very beginning is how we be would begin each, you know, entry was with a, a little just right. overview of the, of the weather. But the actual temperatures themselves, we thought, went a little bit. It was, you know, it got to be a little bit much to type them. So initially, I typed everything verbatim. I didn't put in any periods or commas or make any corrections at all the first round. Um, and I thought, this is getting, you know, it's a little much. That just this description, I think, for a reader would be sufficient. Right. It, so th that was about the only thing we pulled were, were that, you know, just the numbers. And certainly there there is enough information about the weather and is weather reports for that that focus of his to come through. And, um, and as I say, you know, if you, if you sit with it as a reader, um, imagine, well, what it would be like for someone thinking about the changing temperature by degrees as the day progresses and how, how much they, this would be a register of how their body feels over the day and how it might be changing. And, right. You know, and it was something that occupied him. Right, exactly. He was, yeah, you know, yeah, he, he had very little to occupy himself with, other than reading, 
um, maybe watching what was going on. Uh, he likes to go outside when uh, Howard seems to be one of the slaves who does a lot of the work around the house. When he was doing the planting and um, he would go out and he would he would say, I looked at Howard when he was planting cucumbers or cantaloupe or um, working on putting in a rye field. Um, he would go outside and watch them do that. And I think you get a sense he probably had a close relationship with him because Howard also brings him puppies. Um, he, they go through a series of dogs. Um, and um, it, it, you just kind of get an un, you get a feeling as you go through it of what these relationships are like. Right. And I think that's sort of key is to, is to say that you get a feeling, you know, you don't, you don't go out of your way in terms of, of, um, describing the relationships in terms of what he felt, but let the words and sort of the ap- the absence of him even describing what he felt, yet nonetheless, the repetition of the words and our imagining of the scenarios and him being situated in particular mm-hmm. material constraints. Um, it's through that where we gain a feeling um, of what he felt for the people in his life and what they meant to him. Exactly. Exactly. And, and even though he is separate from what's going on and is constrained, uh, uh, is separate from what's going on during the war, in the war elsewhere on the battlefield and also in the town and is constrained materially yet, it, it really felt like his, his acumen, um, his ability to think through um, the the changes that both sides were going through in terms of winning and losing, um, and even to sort of co- contradict his father and have his own opinions, that all of that is one with his sensitivity towards the world bodily as well as intellectually. And, you know, so I, it, it really felt like there was a connection for me in terms of having the time to read, like he had nothing else to do but read or nothing else to do but think about the weather. Yet also those things that like the weather and, and the words he was absorbing and was sensitized to in ways that other people who, who you know, were running errands all the time weren't thinking about. And right. And so, so, so to me, it felt like that's what was sort of opening up, opening him up to the world in ways that a more strictly intellectual analysis by someone who gets around like a reporter um, may not have. Exactly. Exactly. And, and um, he's, also, he's, also, he's also relatively young, too. So to have the, the, the kind of understanding that you're talking about um, is what makes it this such an appealing read for people. We don't have very many young men who wrote diaries like this. That's why Ted was so astounded that no one had picked this up and gone with it before. Um, There are other journals or other diaries out there. Some of them are very well known, but those were all adults. They were either involved in the war um, as soldiers or involved in the war due to their close social standing somebody like Mary Chestnut, who was friends with Verena Davis, for example. Um, her diary is a very famous one. This one is a little bit, uh, it's different. It, it's, it's, it's separate that you've brought up a couple of times. And I think his separateness allows him to, to do a little bit of analysis and um, to think about things and say, you know, we've got problems in the Confederacy. If we don't change this, then we're really going to have a very hard time. And, and he gets critical very early on, I thought, um, which, again, I thought I thought was interesting and very insightful for someone so young. Right. His uh, There's the end of the book. You include a letter written by his mother after Leroy's death to uh, her sister. And in it, um, she says, quote, the contemplative life he led and the holy instincts of a pure nature unsoiled by contact with the world had ripened his judgment and he was capable of advising many older than himself, end quote. So so you see that even she's recognizing and putting it in in different words than I had, but that there's that from his separateness, he, he is able to, to see things in a different light, um, to, to, to separate out possibilities that other people may just conflate to get through the day. True. True. I think that's very true. And and I think also his humor, um, is, is located in, in that ability to, 
to, to sort of sit back and contemplate. He's able to laugh about uh, stuff because he, he is lying recumbent in a way that, again, allows him to to see different combinations of possibilities and that and and maybe that, you know, that we're all mortal. And, and I, I think it, it's some deeper level that that's also informing his humor. Um, can you so talk a little bit about about the humor? I mean, I, I mentioned at the beginning, it's he's sometimes very snarky and has a quite of an acid wit about him. Oh, yes. Yes, he does. Um, it, there's uh, one one scene where people are talking about his health and he found out that people were saying, well, if he only tried harder, he would be able to walk. And his response was, I, I could see um, my own high school students and the expletives that they would use. And he just picks out this whole string, writes this real long one word, you know, sentence word, um, that it, it's nonsensical, but you can feel his his anger, and but a sense of humor as well coming out in it. Um, he um, he finds out that Belgium has um, recognized the Confederacy, and that's so significant. He writes the word Belgium backwards. Um, mm. it, there were there were things that we had to kind of puzzle over a little bit. What does he really mean by that? Um, but he does. He, he has a, a good sense of humor um, and seems to, to laugh a lot despite everything. Um, right. In fact, one of the things he writes again and again and again is the phrase saw off my leg. And um, and it's a it's I was reading elsewhere that um, and I don't know if this is true or not, but it's I found a 19th century reference to the phrase saw off my leg as a quote unquote Roman um, expression said in reference to a good joke. Now, of course, saw off my leg has everything to do with his own leg and how it pains him. And if he would just get rid of it, the pain would be over. Um, but but if, if, if there is a, 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 a reference in there to a joke or making a joke, it makes even more sense of it that, that he's he's so aware of the contingencies of life and that, um, you know, it could have been anyone who 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 is suffering from what he's suffering from as far as he knows and and you know he's guessing about what's going on on the battlefield and many times end sentences with a kind of exasperation like well what do i know or who knows or well, that's going to be a blunder you know some kind of emotional ex- expletive that's attached to and sometimes he uses well saw off my leg you know so Again, it's the humor is embedded in his ability to 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 see the distance between uh, that every, everything is not inevitable and that there is a it, things could go either way. Right, and and he does it that towards the end. At the beginning, he thinks Jefferson Davis is wonderful. Oh, I couldn't have been a better pick for our president. And at the end, he's incredibly critical, and like you said, snarky about things that and decisions that he makes. One of his favorite generals is Joe Johnston. And when he was pulled um, when before Atlanta, he thought this is this is the most horrible decision, and it's based on personality and how you know Jefferson Davis is making a big mistake, and ego is a terrible thing. And so he understands some of the because he's hearing from all levels of society, um, he's hearing things that allow him to make these very. Um, um, What's the word I'm looking for here? Um, these pointed. I haven't trouble with this. Um, like a, a pointed, like a barber, an attacker. Yeah, but or it's, some kind it's of on mark. It's very on mark. And any historian would tell you that, that, that he's correct, that there were personality disputes between Jefferson Davis and certain people. And Joe Johnston was one of them. Um, so it was a personality thing. Uh, keeping Braxton Bragg on was a personality thing. Um, and, um, you know, uh, during um, Vicksburg, he's like, Pemberton would be better off in New Guinea than he is in Vicksburg right now. Um, so he, he has a, a very insightful understanding of, of all these intricacies about these personalities of people he's never even met. But because he hears so much about them from people who do know, he's got a very, um, very informed opinion 
mean, that's what I'm trying to say is that it's, yeah. it's not guesswork. Right. I mean, it's an informed. And, you know, we talk about fake media today. They had to sort through all kinds of erroneous media reporting as well. Um, right. One thing that struck me um, was Gettysburg and he's talking with or heard Mr. Clisby talk. Mr. Clisby was the uh, editor of the Macon Telegraph, uh, the major paper. He says, oh, he doesn't think that this is going to be a big deal. Well, Gettysburg was like the watershed of the war. You know, it, it, it ended up being a very big deal for a lot of different reasons. And he questions that right away. He doesn't understand. Um, doesn't understand that. He talks about all the all the high-ranking officers that have have been killed. He lists them several times. Um, talks about one unit that has no officers left at all. Um, and, and he says this is a catastrophe. How could he say that it's you know not not very much? Right. So so at the beginning. Some of the earlier entries, uh, it, it war and the people who are fighting it, it's, it, it's more cut and dry or, or, you know, like winners and losers and, oh, of course they won or of course they lost. But as it progresses and he re- as he reads more and thinks about it more, all these names become real p- fallible people and critique, critique enters uh, his mind and his words. And, and also... At the same time, he finds, as we were talking about earlier, a way in terms of writing about these these men elsewhere, a way to assert himself as a man. I mean, obviously, the question of impotence and not being able to walk, not being able to fight is something that we need to entertain throughout or think about as we're reading. I mean, it's it's all over the place. Um but but he finds nonetheless ways to to assert himself, um, not just in his critiques of the personalities, um, but also I was thinking about his interest in playing chess, and 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 you know chess is a huge part of his life because it's one thing he can do and he can do very very well. He keeps charts in his diary of of, of, of the, the different moves he he has made uh, and the matches that he has won or lost, um, and so it's it's in some ways you know chess is a is a way of engaging in the war even it is you know it's like a kind of there's a distance obviously it's you're moving pieces around a board you're not on the battlefield yet yet it it, the materiality of it the tactility of it sort of vibrates with with war because that's what's going on around him um i I think that's very good because you know it it gives him a a um it broadens his mind out. It makes things more three-dimensional. So even though he's looking at maps, um, he has, has people who draw him maps of different battles, um, different places. Uh, he's very thrilled to get an accurate map of, of First Manassas, for example. Um, playing chess allows him to think more on a three-dimensional level than just a two-dimensional level. So like you're saying, you can think about these things in more depth, probably more depth than many adults could at the time, because as you were saying, they're busy living their lives. He's able to sit back and think about it. So um, I think that's a very, very good point. And um, I, I love the chess scenes, you know, two friends who come and play chess with him all the time. He gets into playing chess and actually is is playing with with one of the women in the neighborhood, one of the moms in the neighborhood, and she's actually quite good. And he was surprised by this, and they start playing chess, sending pieces of paper back and forth. I thought, oh my gosh, this is really, um, really incredible. Um, I, that was just um, really struck me. I never would have thought of doing that. I'm not a very good chess player either, but <laughs> yeah, no, but but as we're, as as we're both saying, it really brings home the the three dimensionality of his thinking, the materiality of his thoughts, um, the tech, the tactility um, of his words. Even obviously, it's trans the the some of these uh, chess moves are transcribed in the diary, and so so one has to think about those those transcriptions of moves um, analogous to two words to a kind of. A plotting out and or need to organize, you know, one's time and one's life and one's right. thoughts. So when the time comes, when they actually Macon is, because most of, most of the war is away from Macon. Um, the time does come when Macon is under threat. Um, 
And due to different situations, it's up to Leroy to figure out what to do. Um, his father's away. His brother's away. He's the man of the house. And so he's the one who makes the decision about whether the family stays or goes. I'm not going to spoil it. But um, it, it, it he was able to make decisive decisions at that point that I think were the correct ones. Yeah. Um he again it's an extension of that assertion of his self um as a man i mean we need to state that too i mean it's it's uh he's no doubt uh sees himself uh in relation to his brother he is he has a serious emotional attachment to his brother um and and really worries about him when when the brother thomas is off at war and of course the father does too so much to go and get him out his or at least move him to a position that's not on the front lines um right so in many ways at the end when when leroy is the man of the house um he is at 16 at, he's only 16 exactly then he is um standing in the place of his of his brother and father um you know, mm-hmm. in, in every sense of standing right place. Right. And at, at the same time, as you say, uh, you know, he, he has these emotional attachments to his to the to the slaves that are, that are in the house. And and they also um, g- come to have a, a more more pr- presence as as people in his life as the diary proceeds as well. I mean, I, I think that that that's because they are there. At least one of them um, is pushing his wagon around and intending and, uh, and him yes. to him that way. Um, but but I also felt a kind of you know as as he was coming into himself uh, as a man, it, no matter the constraints he had, um, there there is a see there is a a way that he's seeing those around him in a in a new more complicated way as well. Mm-hmm. And and, and yeah. even at the end, there there are phrases where where you know that that really show the blending of worlds, the blending of the slave worlds and his own, with sentences like you know Thomas home again comes home like darkies, and and of course there's yeah. a. There's a you know Thomas is coming back and forth um, to, to the his he's stationed down in, in downtown Macon he's also right. off elsewhere um, and there's there is a coming and going but much like the the slaves who are coming and going from the plantation to the house and so mm-hmm. so that so so bot so um, demarcations between people almost matter less and less and less in his experience as time goes on and, 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 you know, and, and bodies and, and what bodies are can and cannot do is what at, at the end of the day is the story. You, you see, you see how things change from being very rigid at the beginning to, to being much more, you know, people are confused about their position in society. They're, uh, he says at one point, we don't know where we're going to be in a year from now. Um, things are changing so much. Um, and that was that was a wealthy family. Um, he worries about the people who don't have the resources that his family has. So he's aware of that as well, um, which I thought was was really remarkable because you think of, you know, these these young rich kids, they have no sense of the poor or the underprivileged. But he did. Because, you know, he he had his own issues that he's dealing with, but he's concerned about, you know, the, the rains are really there were a time where it was raining too hard. He goes, what's what's this going to mean for the poor farmer if he loses all of his crop? What's that going to mean for him, his family? Um, he gets a sensitivity about all levels of society around him, I think, because he is in one place and he is able to stop and think and consider where other people may not be able to do that. They don't have the time. So we'll, we're going to wrap up in a, a minute. So I just, I just want to say um, a bit about, um, about his death and that's not giving anything away because you talk about it right at the beginning of the book. <laughs> um, uh, but as I, as I was, as I was reading through um, it, it, uh, it is very strange and and interesting um, how you know the war comes to an end and, and he comes to an end at very much the same time, um, and and I couldn't help but think about you know how how much the leg that w- what he thought may have been wrong with him and that he's he's looking at his leg all the time and thinking that this is what's wrong with him you know is is this kind of a symbolic you know uh, cover for 
obviously for the real spinal tuberculosis. And it, it, it mapped strangely onto some idea of like, you know, that the, 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 the Confederacy as a, as a symbolic idea as a nation could not hold up any longer. And it was it was collapsing into a very uh, to a bodily reality of of, you know, men who were dying on the battlefield and the army wasn't as strong as the north and all that. And, and also the, the reality of of slavery and all, and all these things that that um, couldn't be sustained on a symbolic level anymore. And so I just I was wondering if you just had any thoughts about how that how his sort of collapse into reality, realizing that he was going to die and um, uh, maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. We'll leave that to the reader whether when he when he realizes that. But it's sort of timing with with the with the end of the war and what that might mean or how you are thinking about it. Um, I thought it was incredibly symbolic. I mean, if I had written a fiction or or read this as a fiction, I would have thought it was, you know, intentional. Um, but it's not. It's the reality. And I, I think the the war, his interest in the war, um, just know, knowing that, that he didn't know what was going to happen, I think, kept him going for a long time. But when he saw that they had lost and they actually had a union officer billeted in their home, um, which made things very uncomfortable. Um, he knew that that was over then. And so his, his outside interests are now, um, have been eliminated and his, his body seems to be failing him at the same time. And I think he just kinds of gives up. Um, right. yeah. All, ex- all explanations fail. I mean, yeah. other than whatever the reality was of his bodily um, suffering. Right. Everything changes. The state, the slaves start leaving um, one by one. Um, two of them eventually stay on. Um, his mother has to bring somebody up from the plantation to do the cooking and um, the set and the other thing. And um, he sees that there's, there's going to be a whole lot of change. It's going to be very, very different. And he's starting to not recognize things. Um Right. Yeah. It is affecting his mind, which a lot of, a lot of people went through that. You know, you can look at the world and say, this is not the same world I grew up in. And that was their reality. And he he just, he just kind of, he lets go at that point. So um, we did notice um, reading the transcribed pieces that the last, um, I want to say the last four pages, but in the book, that doesn't mean much. We do know where his mother starts writing for him. Right. Because the handwriting significantly changes. And and Ted and I went back and forth. You know, this is this is how we would write a, an E, and this is the way she's writing an E. And um, back and forth like that to figure out when his last actual entry was. And it was a couple of weeks before he died. Um. And then it it just stops with, I am, and then you can't read the word. And we had to figure out how to read, what what word is that? We went back and forth on that for quite some time. It's just, I mean, it's such a, again, if you were writing a novel, you would end that way too. It, it's so strangely on point in mm-hmm. terms of truth, this, this ending of I am, and then I think, you know, there's no, there's no adjective. There's no description. There's no analysis. It's just, you know, this I am at the end. And then a word that's um, very difficult to, to. Is it per, perhaps? Is that yeah, what you, that's what I we just, came up with. We came up with a lot of different options, but then being able to magnify it and then mess around with it in, um, you know, some um, the programming um, to right, change the right. contrast on it. We, we came up with perhaps. Uh, when his mother wrote, she uh, her pen skips, so sometimes the ink doesn't embed all the way. But you can see where the nib line was, um, and that's what happens there because she's, you know, taking dictation basically. And I think he says, "I am perhaps dying." Hmm. It's it's a, it's such a wonderful image of historical research to close our interview on as well. Just looking closely 
with the technology we have in terms of reproduction and, and blowing up uh, 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 handwriting from 150 years ago and, you know, guessing I am perhaps, and perhaps the word, I mean, the word perhaps too has that, it has is sort of a uh, um, undefinableness to it as well. I mean, it's, 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 it's saying something is yet to be decided. And here we are really looking, really trying to contemplate, um, and sitting with that sort of instability and that that's where we end. And I think one of the greatest things about the, the piece as a whole is, um, is the modeling of, of a sort of contemplative being in the world that yes, is underwritten by immense pain. Um, but, and that's all, and that's very much on the surface. It's not being hidden, uh, yet as we've just disc- been discussing, it really opens up onto a way of looking at the world that that slows us down and we begin to see things in ways that are much more complicated and 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 truthful and realistic so i thank you uh janet for your time um the book oh you're very welcome the book is uh the war outside my window the civil war diary of leroy wiley gresham 1860 to 1865 thank you very much janet